You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. And what a beautiful word, the word mercy, grace, goodness, faith. Those are Bible words. And we praise you, Lord. You are a merciful God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love. Uh, Not willing that any should perish, but as our Sunday school lesson said today, and as Peter echoed, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's because you patiently wait. So Lord, we pray today that every person in this room knows you. And if they don't, that Lord, today they would give their heart, they'd give their life to you. And from this moment on, begin to serve you. Lord, we pray for those that may be here today, that may be hurting. We pray that you'll minister to them. And God, most of all, dear Lord, I ask you to cleanse me, to forgive me. Lord, let me be a vessel today that you can use. And we'll give you the glory and the honor for what takes place. And we pray this. In the sweet, precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, praise team. Appreciate so much. And uh, it's good to see you here today. If you have your Bibles, in a moment we're going to look at 1 Peter, and uh, I'm at 1 Timothy. And uh, I'm trying to get my notes here together using one hand since I only have one hand. But we are in the process of going through kind of an introduction to the chronological Bible. And that's what we'll be looking at today. So you can go ahead and turn to First Timothy and we'll get to it in a few moments. Up here at the front, you'll see a display. We've got the chronological Bible. If you've not gotten one, we're running low, I think, and that's exciting to me because, in other words, people are buying those Bibles. They're $10 a piece. Uh, you'll love the print in these Bibles. It's excellent print, and it's in a, in a way that I think you'll enjoy reading it. And uh, it's broke down day by day, and we'll be going through it in 2017 as a church. This is the Sunday school book that you'll be using if you're a Sunday school teacher. You'll need to pick up one of these soon, and we'll go ahead and begin to move in that direction. But in 2017, we'll be, we'll be going through the Bible chronologically, verse by verse, as a body of believers. You'll also receive a, a book card, a, book, um, a bookmark, and if you've not gotten this, but you bought the Bible, we'll make sure you get that as well. Because that has a picture of the chart that we'll be talking a lot about as we go through this this journey. There are times in our lives when there's a kind of a life-changing moment. And you've heard me say this. When I was about 16 years of age, my uh, uncle, his name was Tom Parker. My uncle Tom got sick. Uh, He had viral pneumonia. He was very, very sick, and, um, and he was dying. I didn't know that at the time. My dad called me. My dad was working in Jackson. He was driving back and forth from Yazoo City. He asked me to come up to the hospital, King's Daughters Hospital there in Yazoo City, to stay with my uncle while he went to work. My grandparents would eventually arrive, 
My uncle was 38, 39 years of age. He had not taken care of himself. He was, uh, enjoyed the beer every little bit. He smoked cigarettes. He just didn't take care of himself. And uh, when I got there, I noticed his fingers were turning blue and I knew that my uncle was dying. He and I were real, real close. I mean, we were just, we were real close. And so finally the doctor came in and they were moving him and they were moving him from there to the VA hospital. My uncle didn't have a lot of money. He was a poor struggling farmer, so he didn't have a lot. So they were sending him to VA because he was a veteran. And so we get to VA and my uncle dies about 15 or 20 minutes after we arrive at the ER there at VA. It was life-changing for me. 38 years old, it was hard for me to even comprehend, even to wrap my 16-year-old mind around that. I was in a trauma. I was struggling. I was playing high school football. I was a pretty good football player. And, and uh, I, I went to the head coach and I quit football. I'll never forget that moment because that was a life-changing moment for me. Then I asked my dad if he would. I gave him the money. I said, I want you to buy a living Bible. The Billy Graham Association had put out the translation called the Living Bible. It really was the first paraphrased Bible. Paraphrase means it's more like Eugene Peterson's The Message. So he bought me that Bible. It was an old green cover, brought it home to me, and I began to read it. Uh, Young people, I carried that Bible to school. I was in high school. I was known as a kid that quit football. Uh, My coach wasn't happy. But I carried that Bible to school, and I began to read that Bible from cover to cover. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I kind of stumbled through that at 16 years of age. I kept reading, and I sensed the call of God on my life. But I also came to understand the Bible as a whole. God's story. And so what you're going to be doing in 2017 when you get your Bible, your chronological Bible, is we as a congregation are going to be going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it's going to be very different because you're going to be doing that chronologically. Now last week we said this, the Bible is whose story? It's God's story, history, His story. The Bible is God's story. And you and I said this last week, that in a congregation like this, one of the things that builds kononia, fellowship, as the Greeks would say, that uh, that intimacy as a congregation is that you and I learn each other's story. For somebody who came in late, they see me up here like this. They wouldn't know that yesterday I was playing with my grandsons, fell in a creek, and dislocated my shoulder. So if they came in late, they wouldn't be aware of that. But that's a story. In other words, the more you and I learn about each other, the more we begin to develop a level of intimacy, fellowship, and even a level of trust. One of the things that happens in our, home, in our homeless community meal Thursday, and again, thank you for the volunteers. Man, Janice McBride, she is like the Tasmanian devil in the kitchen. I don't mean that bad. I just mean, you know, that character in Bugs Bunny cartoons that would spin around, had so much energy. There were a lot of people that plugged in, our staff, Reggie, some our deacons, there were a lot of people that plugged in. 
and I'm thankful for every one of you. But one of the things that I love, and I think, Reggie, you see this over and over again, is when volunteers sit down with homeless men and women that we brought in on those three vans that we had running, and they sit down and they actually begin to develop a conversation and a relationship. In other words, what they're trying to do is learn the person's story. You see, the story is critical. It is impossible. Now, I want you to listen to this. It is impossible to have fellowship with God apart from His Word and understanding God's story as it is developed in the Bible. In fact, the strength of a marriage is what? It's communication. Most marriages that have problems, the problem will center on a lack of communication. They're both busy, burning the candle at both ends. They're going here, going yonder. And a couple is not sitting down and having quality communication, conversation. They quit dating. And before long, what happens to a couple who is not communicating? They begin to drift apart. The same is true with God and His bride, the church. So as you and I are in an intimate, personal relationship with Christ, as we're daily in His Word, as the bride of Christ, then we begin to develop some fellowship. Listen, some intimacy. God begins to reveal some things in His Word that He can only reveal as He is trusting us with more of His Word. If you and I are daily in His Word, we're into His story. We're learning, developing, growing as a believer, feeding on the Word of God, and especially corporately as a body of believers, then ultimately what happens, God, we begin to see things we never saw before. Even in marriage, even after I've known Sheila over 40 years, we're coming up on our 39th anniversary. Even after nearly four decades of being married together, we are still learning and discovering new things about each other because it takes a lifetime to know somebody. What's sad is when couples get to a point and the children are grown, they look at each other, and I've seen this and I've counseled this, I don't know you. Who are you? Their identity as a couple centered around the children, once the children are gone out of the picture, gone to college, gone to the workforce or wherever, then all of a sudden a couple looks at each other and they don't know one another. The same is true about God. So I want you to look, 1 Timothy, go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's Paul writing to his, his young student, his young preacher boy, we would say. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, let's see here, 1 Timothy chapter, no, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'll get it right in a minute. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Now watch what Paul says here to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Now watch this, because Chronological Bible in 2017, as you and I read through it together as a corporate body of believers, it's going to give us this ability. that Who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly does what? Handles the word of truth. Look at, um, look at chapter 3, verse 16. Paul goes on to say, I'll just flip the page over, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Now Paul's in prison, waiting to die. These are the last words he would ever pen. 
Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, he said, you need to, chapter 2, verse 15, you need to write, you need to be able to rightly handle the Word of God. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, and I think it's a strong verse as to the inerrancy and fallibility of the Word of God. Truth without any mixture of error. He says, all Scripture is what? It's God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now take a left, go to John 15, 3. Because we're going to talk about this in a moment, the power of the Word of God in our lives. John 15, chapter 3. And I think this is a great verse, and we'll develop it in a moment. In John 15, verse 3, Jesus said this. He said, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, everybody look this way. Though the Bible represents God's story and and should carry so much weight in your life and in my life, if the reality were known for most of us, we only know bits and pieces of it. Is that not true? In fact, there are a lot of chapters. Let's say Malachi, the last, cha- the last book of the Old Testament. Let's say passages out of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Isaiah. A lot of times what happens, you and I have bits and pieces. Now let me put this in perspective. Imagine that you found a letter from somebody you loved, but it was only fragments of the letter. In other words, you'd read down just about the time you'd be reading, all of a sudden there'd be a big part of the letter that had either been scratched out, was filthy dirty, or had worn away by time. Let's say it was a, let's say it was a letter that had been hidden away and in in an old dresser that had been given from your grandfather to your grandmother when they were dating. And you're sitting there reading that and all of a sudden the age and time has wore it away and you can't read it, you can't make it out. There would be a level of frustration. Look this way. This is 66 love letters from God to you and every one of them are important. But the reality is, is that if you and I were honest, that we sometimes only know bits and pieces. So chronological Bible, the translation, the chart that we'll be talking about in a moment, or we may see up on PowerPoint, but it's over there on the wall there. Each one of those pictures represents four eras, epics, or time periods which, which are in the Bible. In other words, as you and I learn that chart right there, we begin to understand and grasp the Bible in its entirety rather than bits and pieces. Let me tell you three things real quickly. Your only offensive weapon is the Bible, the Word of God. That's it. In Luke 4, Matthew 4, when Jesus was dealing with Satan, dealing with the devil, he had one offensive weapon that he used, and he modeled that for you and I. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, the 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 armor. Reggie walked us through those, those pieces of armor. There was only one offensive weapon and that was the sword of his word. So you and I have to grasp and understand how to handle God's sword in order to take on our enemy. It's the only, it's the only offensive weapon that we have. Secondly, it's not only that, it's the only way we can be spiritually nurtured. My nourishment My feeding is coming from the Word of God. Paul talks about that in Corinthians. 
You remember we said last week, he said, I want to give you... I want to give you meat, but I'm still giving you milk. Spiritually, some of us are anorexic. Some of us in this room are anorexic. We are spiritually starving ourselves to death because we are not systematically in the Word of God. Now, I, I did the 90 days. Somebody gave me, I think it was Chris, um, um, not Chris Chandler, Chris McKinnon. Chris McKinnon. Chris McKinnon gave me the 90-day Bible. Have you ever had a gift somebody gave you and kind of irritated you a little bit? I opened the 90-day Bible. And the 90-day Bible means that you're going to read through the entire Bible in 90 days. Now, that's an undertaking. So I thought to myself, you know, that's going to be a lot. So I go back there to the bedroom. I sit down with this 90-day Bible, open it up to the first day, and I read and I read and I read and I read. And I get through and I look at my watch. It's 47 minutes. I come back into the living room. Sheila's cooking supper that night. I say, that's just too much time. I can't do that. Now, I'm being honest as a preacher. Then I sit down on the couch while Sheila's cooking, and I watch two Andy Griffiths back to back. Do you want to know what, how much time the actual the, the content of, the, of this program was? 47 minutes. And you know what God's doing? It's like Jesus sitting there on the couch by you saying, you got time to watch two Andy Griffiths. You don't have time to read my word. <laughs> Life-changing moment was going through the 90-day Bible. Never forget it. Took me 110 days, but I did it. Now, the reality is, is that the Bible is our only offensive weapon. Our Bible gives us spiritual nourishment. I wrote a principle down here. You will and I will remain weak and undeveloped as a follower of Christ without daily feeding on the Word of God. I had a, I had a cousin one time. Uh, she got sick. And I asked her what happened. She said that her mom made her eat her peas. I said, well, peas don't make you sick. How did it make you sick? She said, well, I took one pea at a time and I swallowed it. And another pea and I swallowed it. And she had a big serving of peas. And she swallowed every one of those peas without chewing them. Now, I want you to listen closely. And she was sick as a dog. Sometimes in our life, you know what the problem is in our life? And I heard two women looking at a, they were looking for a gift. And they wanted to give a one-year Bible. And they got all excited. And you know what they said? They said, you can do this in less than 15 minutes. If you streamline your daily time in the Word of God to 15 minutes, which they advertise this on the Chronological Bible, that you can read the Bible through in a year by devoting 15 minutes to reading the Word of God. Let me tell you what I think that's like. I think that's like you and I sitting down every day and swallowing a pea. And about the only thing that it's going to do for us in some ways is make us sick. Because remember something, your enemy can use the word of God against you. He did against Jesus. He said, if you be the Christ, then throw yourself down from the temple. And he quotes out of the Psalms. He says, for it's written that legions of angels, 72,000 angels are standing ready to lift you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said, and it is also written, you shall not put the Lord thy God to a foolish test. Some of us in this room are spiritually anorexic. I tell you what our problem is too. We want everybody else to prop us up. 
Your LTG is not for your benefit, just merely to keep you on track in your daily walk with Christ and the Word of God. It's the ability of people around you to hold you accountable that you are. So it's spiritual nourishment. Uh, uh, in, in John 15, 3, Jesus said, you've been cleansed by my word. And in the Greek, he uses a word for, it's where we get our word catheter, catharsis. And what he's saying is, is that as you and I are reading the word of God, we're not only being nurtured, we're being strengthened. But let me tell you something else is doing. It's cleaning out all the filth that the world is putting in. We live in a fallen world, right? It's hard to be a Christian. Sometimes we go to a job and we're absolutely miserable in that job. We hate our job. Over 90% of the American people don't like their jobs. So just join the ranks. A lot of people don't like their jobs. And a lot of things about your job and my job, even as a pastor, is sometimes having to deal and wrestle with the world. The enemy, you're in a fallen world and a fallen system. And the only way sometimes that you and I can get the trash that the world is dumping into here, through here, and in here, is by the Word of God. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, listen, as you read my story and grasp and understand my story, don't swallow it, don't swallow it whole, chew on it, mull over it, meditate on it. And as you do that, and you begin to digest it, it begins to do some things in your life. And let me tell you what it'll do. It'll nourish you, but it will also clean you up. Children are the worst. You're raising small kids, and you teach them after they go to the bathroom to do what? What do you want kids to do after they go to the bathroom? I mean, you know, Kathy said, wash your hands. And that's true. But what do you want them to do before they wash your hands? Flush your toilet. You take the, you take the kid in there, and you look at him, you say, you know, this is not rocket science. Now, you see this handle here? So you flush the toilet. Now watch this. We had a, we, I'll, I, I'll say it. We had, a, we had one of our leaders in the church one time griping and complaining, Stan, because the toilet up here, you had to hold the handle down to get it to flush. And he was in a deacon's meeting. That'll tell you something. And he was complaining about the fact that what's wrong with that toilet in the men's room up here in the foyer? You have to hold the handle down to get it to flush. And so, you know me, being the sarcastic person that I am, I said, well, next time you go, just call me and I'll come hold it for you. There's n Listen, let me tell you what God says about his word, the Bible. God says his word, the Bible, catheter, catharsis, is a catharsis. As you and I read the word of God, let me tell you what happens. You may not realize it, but as you and I read the word of God, it cleans up our minds. It does. And if you got a dirty mind, if I got a dirty mind, let me tell you something. Let me tell you where it stems from. It all goes back to this. I'm not spending an adequate time, enough time in the word of God. Now, what chronological Bible does is it does two things. Number one, it will get you systematically day after day in your Bible chronologically reading it along a timeline. Secondly, it will help you gain a working knowledge of God's story. Not fragments, not pieces of a puzzle. You will fail to understand Christ until you understand Genesis through Malachi. 
We need the Old Testament to understand who Jesus Christ is. Now, real quickly, CBT is dividing the Bible into 14 eras or epics. So when you look up there at the left, top left corner up there, what's that first epic, that first time, that first era, E-R-A, what is that? That's creation. And the second, well, let's leave it there. The second one is called what? It's the patriarchs. Now, last week, we talked about that first square there because the CBT, Chronological Bible, is going to give you the ability to like a puzzle. You remember last week we talked about a puzzle. When you get a 5,000-piece puzzle, first thing you do, you look for the corners and the edges. You lay it out on a big table, you put the corners, you put the edges, and then you begin to sort the pieces according to colors. While all the time you're looking at what? You're looking at the cover. Now let me tell you real quickly, the theme of God's story, the theme of the Bible is God's redemption, the story of redemption, and the story of his Redeemer. So the cover of the puzzle of the Bible is Christ. Let me put it this way. This is your playbook. You ever see a quarterback? In a little while, we'll be watching NFL. Now, when you look at a quarterback, you look at a guy like, let's say, Tom Brady, or you look at some of these quarterbacks, what do they have on their person? A lot of times they'll have the plays on, a, on, a, on like a, a wrist, it looks like a wrist chart. And you'll see an NFL seasoned quarterback, veteran, he's looking down and he's examining the plays. Let me tell you what your Bible is. Your Bible is God's playbook to you. In every situation you find yourself in, when you're not sure what to do, you go to the Word of God because in, Matthew, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord. Trust means to lean. That's what I'm doing. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not to thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge Him, acknowledge Christ, acknowledge His Word, and He will direct your path. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten. So the chronological Bible, those 14 charts or 14 epics or periods of time in which you and I will divide the Bible up, and as we gain a knowledge of that chart up there, we'll begin to understand the Bible. Now last week, we looked at creation. Creation runs from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 11-27, right? I wrote this down. I want you to listen. This first square there, that first square, this is the first of the 14. It's the, it stands for creation. Here we are introduced to the Creator, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't come along later. We'll find in the Old Testament He was pre-incarnate. Incarnation means God in flesh. Pre-incarnate means a pre-incarnate form. He's always been and will always be. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're introduced to God, the Creator, the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image. We're introduced to characters. Lucifer, the light bearer. Satan, Diabolos, the enemy. There's an enemy to God. He's the devil. He's fallen. And there's Adam and Eve, and they too in time will be fallen as well. We see disobedience. We see the conflict 
of love and free will, we see the cure for disobedience, for sin, which is the shedding of blood. Billy Graham was speaking at a university. He was asked to address the anthropology department. He's on his way to the anthropology department of a major university. He knows in a moment that they're going to take this evangelist and they're going to rake him over the coals as to his belief in the Word of God and in Christianity. But Billy Graham says he's walking across his campus and he's thinking because Billy Graham was an anthropology major, if I remember. He walks in and here's these high muckety-muck professors. Here's the upper echelon of that academic community. Here's all those students. And before they can answer him a word or ask a question, he said, before you get started, let me ask you a question. Give me one group of people, one civilization that did not practice blood atonement. Uh-oh. The entire anthropology department, professors, the people of academia couldn't give him one. And Billy Graham went on to say this, because when God created man, he programmed into our brain, just as C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity, this understanding that blood has to be sacrificed, the innocent have to die for the guilty. As they say in Zimbabwe, zira umwechete. There's only one way. So the cover is who? What does the cover look like? The cover is Jesus. Everything else is pointing man to Jesus. Now there's five stories in, in creation. There's creation. Right? That's everything. That's the universe in a picosecond, remember? There is the creation of not only the universe, not only earth, but man. There is secondly the fall, Adam and Eve, the fall, the results of sin. Thirdly, there's Cain and Abel. Fourthly, there is, uh, my, my mind just went blank, Noah, the flood. And then finally, the Tower of Babel. Those five stories make up that first square up there. So when we look at that first square there, that is a period of time from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 11-27, and it deals with everything from creation to the fall to Noah to the Tower of Babel to Cain and Abel. It deals with every part of that portion of the Scripture. Last week, we, we ended with the Tower of Babel. What is the Tower of Babel? Well, I, I tried to write this down because I'm trying to move a little quicker. The Tower of Babel, the fifth story, is, and I'm just trying to move on so we can get to the patriarchs, is man coming together. In the Tower of Babel, what happened in Genesis chapter 11 is man comes together and man tries to figure out a way to get to God. But he wants to do it his way. Let me give you an example. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? What did they do? What did they do? They hid. And they covered themselves, right? What did they cover their sin with? Their nakedness. Fig leaves. That was man trying to get to God his way. Okay, that's a picture of what man does. Always man does. Now when you have Cain coming along, what does Cain get mad at God about and ultimately get mad at his brother Abel about? What does Cain do? 
Cain tries to come to God, but he tries to come to God his own way. Rather than shedding blood, rather than going out in the flock, getting the best, or going to Abel and getting a lamb without blemish and shedding blood because Adam and Eve had told him how they came to God. Rather than doing that, he just went out and got some of his produce together and said, threw it down there at the altar and just said, that'll have to do. God said, that won't do. You can't cover your disobedience, your sin, your rebellion without shedding blood. Now you get to the Tower of Babel, man's still not convinced. It's been the flood. I mean, Shem, Ham, and Japheth have, have replenished the earth. By Genesis chapter 11, you find man getting together together. They had a big conference called the Babel Conference. And they got together and they got all their resources together and they said, what we're going to do, we're going to build a tower that's going to lift all the way to God. Now they were trying to do what Adam and Eve tried to do with the fig leaves, what Cain tried to do with his produce, and now they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to do it corporately. So they're all together. And the Bible says that God looked down and he said, I wonder what they're doing down there, like looking at ants. I wonder what they're doing down there. Oh, look at them. And so what God does is that God brings confusion. He brings a, a brokenness in their ability to communicate. And all of a sudden, languages, ethnicities, but more so linguistic languages, all of a sudden begin to separate man. Man was now divided, and he began to go out all over the earth. But the Tower of Babel is a picture of corporate man trying to find a way to God their own way. That's what it is. Now let me, let me ask you something. Real quickly, what's the day of Pentecost? The day of Pentecost is characterized by what the Bible called the baptism of the Spirit. The, the New Testament church was told to wait. The disciples were told to wait until the, Jesus said, I've got to go. If I don't go, the Holy Spirit cannot come in the power and the force that it will. And so when Jesus ascended, they were waiting there in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came down and they were baptized and they spoke in what? Some people say, well, an unknown tongue. If you're Pentecostal, you lean that way. But the original language of the Bible, the Greek New Testament says this, they spoke in languages and people from all different languages were hearing the gospel for the first time in their language. That was the miracle of Pentecost. And that's the miracle every time we see it in, in the book of Acts, such as Acts chapter 19. So what happens? Pentecost is the Tower of Babel in reverse. So as you and I are learning those 14 errors, those epics, as we're getting over there into the New Testament, and we see, those, we see that 13th, that globe and those footprints there, we say that's the New Testament church carrying out the Great Commission, but it had the power of God's Holy Spirit, and they were able to understand that was Tower of Babel in reverse. The church is God bringing his people, all ethnicities, all languages, bringing us all together through the blood of Jesus Christ into a single body speaking the same language. And that's the good news, the gospel. You see, that's the power. I tell people all the time, if I could have any gift, any gift, I would want tongues. 
I'm not talking about gibberish. I'm not talking about something somebody puts in a little pamphlet and tries to teach you. I'm talking about the New Testament gift of tongues. The ability to take the gospel to every, every linguistic, every language, and people to grasp and understand. There's power. The Zimbabwean, white Zimbabweans, Europeans would ask me, when I left Zimbabwe, they said, you can go, we stay. What would you suggest? I said, I would suggest that you learn the language of the people so you can know their moyo you can know their heart. And that's creation. And then we come to the patriarchs, the second of the 14. We're not going to be able to get much into this. Let me say just a few things. Patriarch, that word there is defined as the male head of a family. You're either a patriarchal family or you're a matriarchal. I believe biblically you need to be a patriarchal family. The male head of a family or the father of the biblical faith family. Who was the father of the faith? Abraham. Abraham was spiritually our patriarch. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Do your hand up like that. The patriarchs, this second square, is made up of the father of our faith, Abraham. Abraham, say it out loud, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Those are the patriarchs, and really particularly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be considered to be the patriarchs. They were the father of our faith. Now this this period goes from Genesis chapter 11, verse 28, to the end of Genesis. And it's the story of our patriarchs, the covenant family of God. Let me tell you something, the best way I'm laboring through because I'm taking my time reading the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. You and I can't understand anything unless we understand the characters that we can't understand history until we understand the people who make up history. For me, a 61-year-old white man, to grasp and understand and comprehend the civil rights movement, even though I was living in it, requires out of me to research and analyze those personalities that were actually living in the civil rights movement. I've got to do that. I may know Rosa Parks, may know what she did on a bus, But if I don't know her life story, if I have not read her biography, then how can I truly understand? You see, that patriarchal period is you and I looking at these pivotal figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph even, and we're basically beginning to grasp and understand the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, we'll close in a moment. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, let me tell you what he said. God said, Abraham, you remember? In the latter part of Genesis chapter 11, he tells Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father, your kindred, your people, and I want you to go to a place, a land that I will show you. And so Abraham tells Sarah, they're on up in years. They're probably, he's probably 75 at the time. They pack up their stuff, this nomadic, Bedouin kind of people, and they head to a land that God will show them. Along the way, they stop at a certain point and, and his father, Abraham's father, dies. And then Abraham goes on and he goes to this place called, we know it as Canaan, the land of Canaan, Israel. 
And when Abraham gets there, he has the only one he has with him is his nephew Lot. And God says, I'm going to give you this land. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God establishes, listen closely, the Abrahamic covenant. God says, Abraham, I've chosen you. The story of redemption, the priest, the priesthood, and more so the redeemer, Abraham, will come through you. Abraham says, God, uh, I'm 90. Sarah's in her 80s. There's no way. And you remember, Abraham does what fig leaves Adam and Eve did. Abraham does, him and Sarah do what Adam and Eve did, did what Cain tried to do, did what the Tower of Babel tried to do. Guess what they tried to do? They tried to fulfill God's promises their way. And remember, Sarah said, here's my, here's my servant girl, Hagar. Maybe if you sleep with her, we can have a child. Abraham sleeps with Hagar. And they have a child, and his name is Hag- his name is, is Ishmael. And guess what? We're living with the cost of that. Parent, listen to me closely. Sin is, has a ripple effect. It always goes farther and affects more people than you can ever imagine. And we're living with the we're living with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar's trying to do God's will, God's promise their way. And we're introduced to Abraham. And I guess here we're going to have to stop. But God tells Abraham, he tells him this. He says, Abraham, he said, I'm going to send the Redeemer through your lineage. And eventually Abraham and Sarah, she gets pregnant. And she has a little boy and his name is Isaac. Isaac is the quiet patriarch. When you say, he's the quiet patriarch. In fact, in Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham, he says, take your son, your only son, the son you love, not Ishmael, Isaac, and go sacrifice him on a mountain, I'll show you. It was a picture of Calvary and the cross. And if you remember that when Abraham got there to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the son of the covenant promise, he tells his servants, you know, the son asks the father, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see everything, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide. Abraham takes Isaac and they're going another, they're going another day's journey. He looks at the servants and he says, me and the boy will return. People say that's because he believed in the resurrection. He takes his son and just about the time he's about to take the life of his son, Isaac, an angel of the Lord, God stops him and says no. And at that moment, a ram is coming up the mountain. Now let me tell you about his story. A ram is coming up one side of the mountain when he's getting ready to sacrifice. The covenant promised Isaac, his son, his only son. All the promises rest in the son he's getting ready to kill. God's sending a ram up the mountain. And as God sends the ram up the mountain, the ram is caught. Remember what Abraham told Isaac, God will provide a sacrifice. It's a picture of Christ. When the ram is coming up the mountain and God stops the hand of Abraham, at the moment Abraham looks and there's a ram caught where? Where's the ram caught? What? Caught in a thicket, caught in thorns, and he's caught by his head. 
John said, Behold the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. His story from cover to cover fits perfectly. Why did he do it? Story of redemption is to ensure that you and I would be redeemed, we would be bought back from the penalty of our sin, we would be set free eventually from the power and the presence of sin because one day he's coming back to get us. If he's been faithful in all the other promises over a few thousand years, you can be rest assured he's coming back to get you. This is the question. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's stand. One question. Not do you know him. I know President Obama. Oh, President Obama doesn't know me. I know where he lives. I know him if I see him. But that doesn't entitle me the ability to go into his residence. I know him, but he doesn't know me. The Bible says that one day at the judgment, Jesus will look at some people and say, Depart from me, ye worker of iniquity, lawlessness. I don't know you. It's not a matter of whether you know Jesus. It's a matter of whether Jesus knows you. God knows you. How does God come to know you? Through you and I putting our faith and our trust in His grace and mercy and goodness in His Son. The only ability to get into God's house and into God's family is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Is there a point in your life? Yeah, look, you know this story. You know that Bible from cover to cover. It makes no difference. The devil knew the story. The devil knew the Bible and quoted it to Jesus. The question is not whether you know the Bible. The question is not whether you know Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know you? And if, he, and if you're not sure, you settle it right now today. You don't worry about pride. Don't worry about what anybody will say, what anybody will think. Oh, you know, I've been holding a position. I've been doing that. It doesn't matter. If you don't know, you settle it today and make it sure in your heart. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray, dear Lord, now that as we go into this hymn of invitation, as you continue to speak to men and women, boys and girls in this room, if there's someone here today on this Thanksgiving weekend that doesn't know you, they're unsure, unsettled. They look back over their life and they may have been baptized when they were a baby or confirmed at some point in a church or they may look back over their life and they can remember a time they walked the aisle, they were, they were dunked in the water, but it wasn't real. They're not sure. And they need to settle that today. I pray, dear Lord, as Ledge is here at the front and Reggie's here, Zabi here at the front, Sheila and Tamara, Emily, some of these women that are up near the front can go to, with maybe a woman to the altar, sit in a chair over and spend a moment in prayer. God, may you draw decisions that your Holy Spirit is leading us to make. I don't want to talk anybody into anything. But God, I want them to know that if your Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart, 
If they're uncertain, settle it. If they need prayer, come. If they need to be a part of this church and plant their life here, to come. God, may the decisions that we make be decisions that you've led us to make so that we're part of your story, written into your book. Look this way. We're still praying. Moses and God had a discussion. I love this. They argued a lot about God, God's people, the Jewish people. God would get frustrated with the Jewish people, the covenant people, the Abrahamic covenant people, the people that the Redeemer would come through. And God told Moses one time, he said, Moses, he said, you take them, I'm not going. <laughs> you just take them. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a parent, Tanya, when you just go, just do whatever you want, I don't care. You know. And I don't mean God didn't care, and I don't mean that be flippant or disrespectful. But God tells Moses, they're your people, you deal with them. I'm not going. Moses said, you don't go, God, I don't go. <laughs> I'm not going without you. God says, well, Moses, why don't I just kill them all and we'll, we'll, we'll fulfill the Abrahamic covenant through you. I'll raise up a generation through your lineage. Moses said, God, your grace, your mercy, your love, your goodness. And God, what about your reputation back in Egypt? I love the dialogue between Moses and God. But there was a time when Moses said this. Listen to this closely. He and God are in one of those discussions. And, God, and Moses says to God, he says, Kevin, he says to God, he says, listen, block my name from that book you're writing. Block my name from that book you're writing. That name that you put my, that, that, my name written in that book, the book of life, take my name out of it. You think that's something the Apostle Paul said that. He said, oh, that God would take my name out of his book of life for the nation of Israel. That's how much he loved mankind. And we wonder why we're not, I wonder why I'm not the caliber of a Moses or an Apostle Paul. The audacity to say, God, remove my name. But let me ask you something. Is your name written in the book? Because the only way it's written in the book is when you and I repent of our sin, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and in that moment, the Lamb's blood, the name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And God says, I know you. You're one of my kids. Let's pray. Finish. Lord, may you wrap your arms around us. May you speak to us truth as we systematically, routinely, daily feed on your word. Corporately, may there be a fellowship not only with you, Lord Jesus, not only an intimacy with our Creator, but may there be an intimacy between us as believers as we make this journey together. We pray, dear Lord, if someone here says, I don't know, I'm not sure, may they come today and be saved. We pray this in the name of Jesus.